When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This morning, I read that repeating the name of the deceased can quiet the mind when grieving for a complicated person. My stepmother, Jean, was a complicated person. I've been reading all kinds of advice since hearing of her death. I didn't know that she'd begun to weld metal towers in her living room, towers so tall she needed a ladder to complete them. Hi, this is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Idra Novi, author of Take What You Need. This is a beautifully written novel about growing up in rural America with an embittered father. Leah's mother died when she was young, and Jean was the mother Leah remembered. Jean fixed her hair, read her books, and taught her to love Grimm's fairy tales. When Jean left Leah's father, Leah didn't see or hear from her till she was grown and back in town for a funeral, but no longer connected with Jean the way she remembered. Now Jean has died, and Leah has come back to town with her husband and son to see the metal towers Jean has spent the past seven years welding. Hi, Idra. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Galit. So why did you set your novel in the Allegheny Mountains? My family has been in the Allegheny Mountains for over a century. My namesake, Ida Novi, came to this country with my great-grandfather, Abe, and they started a scrapyard um, along the Susquehanna River, which is still in my family. My um, mother's cousin still runs it today. So I have a long history in the region, and it wasn't until, I guess, a couple years ago that I sort of realized that I had been writing about lots of other aspects of my life. And I felt this sort of pool to um, learn about scrap metal and learn how to weld as a way to sort of connect with my namesake. And that was sort of how I came to write about a woman who welds in Western Pennsylvania in her, in the metal, all the metal in the novel comes from a scrapyard that's based on my family scrapyard. Mm. Um, Why have nearly all the houses near Jean have, why have they all been, repossessed? And why is there so much poverty in that area? 
Well, all the Bethlehem steel towns in that area of the Southern Allegheny Highlands, they, you know, this, the economic force in the town was from the Bethlehem steel. And so when Bethlehem steel shut down, other things came in, but nothing could really replace that in terms of ongoing steady employment. And um, so those towns have sort of struggled to reinvent themselves in a sort of post-industrial, you know, post-coal, post-steel era. Uh-huh. So the novel centers around two women. Jean Kovacek was married to Leah's father until Leah was 10. And then after Jean left her father, Leah's father prevented all communication. So my question is, why didn't Jean ever reach out to Leah after she left for college? That's a good question. I think when the, you know, it was the father who put this wedge between them, you know, out of vengefulness, out of a desire for control over, you know, the end of a marriage he didn't choose. I think, you know, there was a lot of reasons that I imagined him making that choice to sort of sever the relationship between, you know, Gene as a stepmother and his daughter to sort of prioritize his own needs over his daughter's needs for this woman who had raised her, you know, um, and stepmothers don't get any legal rights to children, no matter how long they've been a primary caretaker and parent. So um, I wanted to write a little bit about that because I've seen that play out with various friends who have been very involved and have become really stepped in with two feet as parents um, to children as step parents. And then if the marriage falls apart, there's a sort of like tenuous situation that can unfold because they don't have rights to these children, even if they helped raise them. And I just hadn't read anything about that. So that was something I wanted to explore because I've seen that and I, I thought it would be sort of like a rich psychological terrain for a novel and also how, you know, without that intimacy for 10 years and how different rural reality is in this country and urban reality. So that for Leah growing, you know, living in a city and for Jean who's remained in this, you know, area that's been so underserved economically for a long time, how they become estranged and just can't really um, understand each other the way they could you know, when Leah was a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like how you divided the story into the two different sections for first Jean and then Leah uh, back and forth. I liked how you did that. And then you introduce another character, Jean's neighbor, Elliot. When he asks to fill her bottles with water because the water was shut off by the city, should Jean have done more to help it? The neighbors don't work. They haven't paid their bills. I didn't understand. How can the city shut off their water? I mean, it happens all the time. That aspect of the story was actually based on interviews I did leading up to the novel. And um, it's it's pretty terrible because, you know, even if you have Section 8 housing where the, you know, the government's trying to move people into these houses, but then if there isn't subsidized access to water, then, you know, it becomes a hygiene risk and pe- families can't stay and it creates a lot of instability and the kids keep switching schools. And it's just... Um, you know, water is, you know, it's the essence of life. And so it felt like uh, just my instincts as a writer thought that, you know, this sort of unsaid aspect of the necessity of water between neighbors felt was true between these two particular neighbors. But I think growing 
truth, you know, on, on our planet about access to water and neighbors and how, how it can play out for many people. And, um, you know, I think Jean's living alone and she's on a street with a lot of vacated homes and, um, she doesn't know what else they're going to ask. And so she is sort of making guesses based on very little information. Mm-hmm. Can you say more about how Leah is so nervous about going back as she travels to the town of Sevlik with her husband and son? Why is it so fraught? I think what I was trying to capture for Leah is that her sort of associations politically or socially with the town have gotten all mixed up with some unresolved issues she has from her childhood. And so one is sort of compounding the other. And I think it's very hard to detangle our associations with a place in a sort of larger sense and also in a personal sense. And so for her, these longings she had of this, you know, you know, just truncated relationship with this woman who brought her joy and confidence and a sense of intimacy and, and he mothered her and she lost that and has, and then on the other hand, she's living in this fraught time in this country, a very polarized time. And, you know, rural America has been very villainized and responsible for, you know, sort of changes in the country and, you know, often reduced in this way. So she's also receiving a lot of media about this region. And because she was born there, I think she sort of, has a lot of complicated feelings about it culturally, which get, which collide for her with her, you know, feelings about Jean. Mm-hmm. Jean is really upset about the deli where her uh, Elliot's mother, her neighbor, works because the owner always sends the neighbor home with day-old food. Can you say more about that? Well, that also was based on research I did for the book, which is that these sort of curious barter systems can sometimes emerge. And um, in the neighborhood where I was doing some research in my hometown, this was actually happening because there's a whole sort of shadow economy where people are doing work for each other, but, you know, there isn't a lot of cash to go around. And so these other transactional relationships form, which maybe aren't healthy and aren't fair, but out of desperation, people are willing to accept uncomfortable terms for employment. So did you do some research in that exact area? Yes. Yes. And how? Can you can you say more? You know, I had never done research for a novel before in quite this way. And in some way, because I shouldn't have done it for this novel because I'm from a place and I grew up there and my family's still there, you know, the house I grew up in, I still go back to my childhood home and my brother's a waiter in town. And, you know, like I, I have a very, you know, lived relationship. So I'm still in touch with a lot of high school friends. So, but I had this feeling that I wanted to approach it with the same humility. I approached writing a novel set in Brazil where I did ask a lot of questions. And then my second novel was set in an invented country, but it was loosely based on sort of countries where the U S had intervened before and Chile, where I go back and forth a lot. Um, my husband's Chilean. So I was thinking about U.S. intervened in Chile's government and we intervened in Dominican Republic's government. And I had a number, you know, Puerto Rico in other ways. So I, but I, I sort of came to those books wanting to make sure that I was inhabiting them and taking into account. And maybe because my first two books were set in other places that I sort of 
came to this novel, even though it was set in my hometown, I didn't assume I was an authority because I just haven't lived there in a long time. And so I did a lot of interviews and the interviews were beautiful. I I think it was um, really opened a new, deeper ideas for the book because I didn't presume anything. And I asked people and I was just going to ask them about sort of political divides in the town and sort of how they felt about certain issues around water usage and, and, you know, rentals and vacated homes. And, and it, it, we ended up talking a lot about estrangement and how many people in town or family members, people had become estranged from and painful estrangements. And that was why I ended up making you know, estrangement, a focus of the book. And then I started reading more about the rest of the country. And it turns out that um, one in four people in this country is estranged right now from a close relative. It's a, it's a significant problem in the country. Wow. I had no idea. I didn't know Um, either. So can't help but notice that the husband, Leah's husband is Peruvian. Yes. Is that true? Right. It's not so far from Chile. Um, and also she has a little boy. Do you also have a little boy? Yes, Silvestre. Okay. Okay. Um, how did you decide to make Leah Jewish? There's uh, something about a little bit of anti-Semitism that's happening. Yes. So, um, I mean, I grew up Jewish in Appalachia and um, my family, you know, my my Novi family who did the the scrapyard were, because they were Jews, they were not welcome in other industries. And it was like 90% of the scrapyards in the Ohio, Pennsylvania, you know, industrial area because there was so much scrap metal because of the Bethlehem steel and the U.S. steel mills there. They were all run by Jews because they couldn't get jobs doing anything else. So... Um, you know, there is a lot of Jewish history of, you know, Pennsylvania history, Ohio history. There was one scholar I read who said, you can't talk about rural Jews without talking about scrapyards, that those two histories are really bound up together. Mm-hmm. Jean asks Elliot for Elliot's help, the neighbor, because she can't get high enough to work. She can't get high enough to work on what she calls her metal towers manglements. Can you say more about her passion for welding? Well, Jean's father welded and he, he, you know, made tow hatches for um, cars and trucks and did sort of, you know, piecemeal work, but he didn't really want to share his skills with his daughter. She, he let Jean when she was growing up sort of, you know, pass him tools, but you know, because she was a daughter and not a son, I think I, for his generation and for that area, that wasn't something he would give to her. And I think that's probably in part because she is a contrarian nature, as do I. She was drawn to learn the skill that he didn't give to her. And um, I think that it was interesting to me and still welding jobs go predominantly to men and a lot of TIG welding and sort of one kind of welding doesn't really require a lot of strength. It's sort of more careful, fine motor work. And there's no reason that, you know, women aren't part of the workforce and it's changing. There's a whole movement on Instagram and on Twitter that's called uh, weld porn and women who weld and more and more women are, are getting into the industry. So I, I, um, was sort of excited to see how that was changing and sort of the, opening up to include more women. Wow, that's so interesting. Jean glued all kinds of 
uh, weird photos onto the into capsules that she attached to the manglements. Can you explain more about that? Well, I took um, welding classes with um, Julia Murray, who is a metal artist, who is the only woman in the welders union that worked on the bridges of New York. They were all men except for Julia. She was the only woman in the union. And she, you know, hung upside down and repaired, um, you know, the steel and metal on bridges in the city. Um, and she gave me welding lessons and um, she made those capsules that I got that idea from her and she had made them with spoons. So that was Julia's idea. And then she replicated it and taught me how to make it. I think it was something she was sort of just, you know, experimenting and messing around. She's now at RISD and is a really talented metal artist. So I, I was very lucky to, to get to learn to weld with her. Uh, while we're talking about manglements, can you explain a little bit more? Well, what Jean makes are box shapes. They all have six sides, but I think she's been put in a lot of boxes. And so these manglements are sort of mangling the notion of a box. So they sort of take the, you know, tenants of a box and then change them a little bit. They're slightly slanted or the lid is cockeyed. So, you know, she can entirely release her life from the box that she's in, but she can mangle with it. And so I see that as sort of the driving force for her as she keeps returning to the same form. Mm. She, Jean, talks about two artists she greatly admires, the sculptor Louise Bourgeois and the abstract painter Agnes Martin. Did you seek artists for Jean to admire, or were they already artists you admired who inspired the character? Ah, what an astute question. Thank you, Galit. I, yes, I, you know, it's sort of like the chicken and the egg. You probably, they sort of emerged together. I did find a used copy of Louise Bourgeois' writings. And, um, and then I found, no, I found a copy of Agnes Martin's used writings on the street here in New York. But Louise Bourgeois' writings, I did find at a flea market in Pennsylvania, Bull Creek, which is one of the, it's a fantastic flea market. Um, in Pennsylvania, about an hour from where I grew up. And so um, I, I was just thinking that she would come across those books, you know, as I did, and that their writing is phenomenal and really makes you want to want to make art or want to sort of pursue any kind of art, whether it's visual art or writing. Um, And I love Louise Bourgeois writing you know, just how she thinks about sort of the psychic force of her father. And, you know, I, I, there's, it's, it's, she, she was a phenomenal writer. And I think Agnes Martin was a fantastic writer as well. I think the writing stands on its own apart from the visual art. And so I think that instead of an MFA, Jean sort of gets her own by choosing these women artists who she reads and who speak to her. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you knew them and you, put Jean in this position of loving them. I like it. Uh, Let's talk a little bit more about Leah um, and her husband. We haven't said anything about him. Can you say a bit about why is he such a good sport? (laughs) And how does he go for this whole long drive into Pennsylvania with her ambivalence? And why doesn't he just turn around when the obnoxious people at the gas station start mouthing off? I think there's two things. So um, Gerardo is from Peru and he doesn't know that much about his wife's past and this place. And he's curious. And I also think he doesn't 
sort of sense the dangers that she senses. So, you know, he, he, he grew up in Peru. He's a sophisticated guy. He speaks five languages, but he also just, this is a place that he doesn't know anything about. So there's a curiosity there. And I think things that sort of ring out to her as potentially dangerous, they don't go off for him because he just isn't set off by those things. He just doesn't read the place the same way that she does. And so I think that, you know, when you're married to someone from another country, the things that set you off can be very different. Um, So I think that that was something I wanted to explore about, you know, being a couple with someone from North America and someone from South America, that they have very different notions of like what in their environment makes them cautious or wary. So how does that impact them? Whether they sort of downplay each other's concerns or defer to each other's concerns and, you know, how, how that back and forth works out in their marriage. Yeah. How was it that Elliot a neighbor was the only person who knew to call Leah after Jean died. Why didn't Jean have any friends or a community of some kind? Well, I I had more in the novel that I ended up taking out just because it was a question of momentum that she was very close with this neighbor who lived across the street, um, who's mentioned a little bit as having already moved. But the woman who was across the street when the things were sort of closing and the neighborhood became, you know, more deserted, she ends up going to live with her sons, her grown sons. But because Jean doesn't have children, she doesn't have grandchildren, she doesn't have adult children who sort of give her an easy way to sort of restart her life somewhere else. And I think that that happened in my town. I sort of saw that happen with a number of people who we sort of relocated and they were like, well, where do I go? And they would sort of go where their grown children are. But for, for Jean, she didn't get to see her, the child she raised become an adult. She's, you know, she, she was, it was a truncated relationship. And so there isn't anywhere obvious for her to go, but lots of other people have cleared out. Yeah. You very gently bring up uh, without ever really coming right out and saying that this happened during Trump administration, but you uh, kind of skirt around the issues about the people who are wearing red MAGA hats and how they're speaking and how they're uh, behaving and how most of them are uneducated and jobless. Can you say more? Well, you know, I think I don't want to, I didn't want to condemn anyone in the book. I wanted to give everyone equal complexity. I wanted to sort of just let the scenes and the moments in the book be speak for themselves and not sort of categorically dismiss anyone or um, sort of take on a hectoring tone. And that was important to just sort of see how these larger tensions play out between individual people who care about each other. Because I think that's what I found in the interviews I was doing in my town is that people who had known each other for years, but were on opposite sides of the political divide, they, they really struggled to continue to interact. And that alone seems so fraught that it didn't require any sort of, you know, opinions from me as the author that I felt like my job was to sort of ask the question and not to, you know, condemn anyone. I thought you did a really good job of that. As I said, you were, you very gently brought it up and you, you weren't strident in any way. It was well done. So, Idra, what are you working on next? Well, I um, just 
translated a short story by a writer I really admire, Nona Fernandez, that's coming out in the Yale Review. She's a Chilean writer, very talented. And um, I've been working on some poems and I have some inklings of a novel, but um, I haven't quite gotten to it yet. Okay. Everybody needs, sometimes writers need a little break after a book comes out and your book is coming out in a week and it's going to show up. So the day this shows up on the New Books Network will be the day it is born. Congratulations on that. And thank you again for joining me today. Thank you for your insightful questions. This was delightful. And thank you for joining me. This is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Idra Novi, author of Take What You Need. Hope you all have something wonderful to read today. Happy reading.